The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Elaine here, how are you all doing? I hope that you are looking after yourself, being kind to yourself and each other. Today Louise and I are joined by the incredible artist Geordie Jones. We talk about so much in this episode. We talk Geordie's pathway into the industry, DJing, drag, um, Jordi was one of the members of one of the focus groups that were involved with the harassment in the performing arts guides that um, I was co-chair on along with the incredible um, Lisa Sankster and the other members of our working party um, through FST um, and as I say Jordi was involved in one of the focus groups for giving us feedback on the guides before they were launched in May of this year. Um, so we talk about that, we talk about Oh, it's a, it's a full episode, my friends. It is a full episode. We talk about Geordie's writing, their shows, and actually they have a show next year, which will be happening um, next June. So that's June 2024, and it will be their final drag show. And they will be putting a call out out in January, February of 2024 for performers. We'll share that at the time, but for everyone else, make sure that you are following Jordi and following us on socials so that you don't miss out on that call out for Jordi's final drag show. Um, as I say, this episode is full of lots of stuff. Lots of dismantling of the patriarchy, lots of conversations around how we create safe spaces, um, how we take care of our artists and their mental health and at what we are asking them to give of themselves for art as well as just lots of fun. Um, we also talk about Geordie's radio show which I was lucky enough to be a guest on and the link for that is in the show notes of today's episode along with the link for um, the HIPAA guides as well and you can also find the guides uh, on our website which is www.persistentandnasty.co.uk if you support the work that we do you can support us in many different ways one of them can be liking downloading subscribing reviewing the podcast it really makes a huge difference you can shout about us on social media, tell your friends about us, come along to the coffee morning or another way if you can financially support us you can become a persistent pal or a nasty hero or just give us the price of a cup of tea or coffee whenever you can afford it. All details for how to go about that are in the show notes of today's episode and you can also sponsor a coffee morning. You can remain anonymous if you wish, we've had a, an anonymous sponsor before and we're super grateful um, or you can have your name shouted 
positive out all over our socials loud and clear and huge thank you to every single one of you who financially support us and who support us in all the other ways that you do you keep us going and I know I say it every week and it probably feels like I'm just saying it I'm definitely not you have no idea how much it means to Louise and I um so thank you thank you thank you Well, we're on the countdown to the festive holidays and I hope that those of you who are in the pantosphere are looking after yourselves, getting all the manuka honey in your body, lots of ginger and lime and all the healthy stuff. And for those of you doing the other multiple jobs to get yourself through till the end of 2023, I hope that you are also taking care of yourself and looking after yourself. And just remember for all of you to take a little bit of time and celebrate the brilliance of you. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, TikTok Persistent and Nasty. Louise wants me to give it up, but I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> Check out the website www.persistentandnasty.co.uk where you can submit a blog and um, tell us something that's really on your mind. That was my finger cracking. Did you all hear it? Uh, something that's really on your mind, something that you feel really passionate about, that you feel that you need to talk about send that over to us if you go onto the website there um it's nice and easy it'll tell you how to submit that to us and get in touch that way that would be amazing and you can follow louise and i on social media louise is at ms louise oliver on both twitter and instagram and i am at elaine stirrett on twitter and at elaine.stirrett on instagram oh for today's episode oh i don't know actually um maybe something fizzy bubbly that's what Jordy makes me think of bubbly wonderfulness so I would go with whatever that is for you whether it is some form of soft drink or maybe a little champagne because hey we all should have champagne every single one of us should get to have champagne and if you don't like champagne then maybe it's a beer or maybe it's a cider or maybe it's a can of juice eh, or ginger uh, so you know you can do all of those things or if, maybe you just want to have a coffee maybe you need that caffeine to power you through but you can always just have a good old cup of tea sit back relax and enjoy so um louise will join us as soon as she has um finished her chat uh jordy jones welcome to the persistent and nasty podcast Hiya, hen. Hiya, doll. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. I was going to say, once Louise has fixed her dildo, <laughs> she'll be here. <laughs> she'll shoot me for saying that. That's terrible. I'm excited and it's absolutely staying in. I freaking love it. Um, yeah. Jordi, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. This feels like this has been coming for quite a little while and it kind of feels nice that you're going to be our actual final guest of um 2023. That's exciting. The pressure so is feels- on. The pressure's on, yeah. You won't be the last podcast of 2023, but you are our last guest and it feels absolutely right that it's you and I'm very excited. So, uh, Jordi, 
For people who don't know who you are, can you give us a little potted history of you, what um, brought you into the industry, what your kind of loves are, maybe even some of your hates? Yeah, I like that. What are my hates? Let's go for that first girl. Let's talk about the bullshit of being an artist in this industry. Yeah. Oh. Uh, another episode, another time. Yeah, so um, for those that don't know me, Jory Jones, formerly the drag artist Jory Delight of seven years. Uh, I am a non-binary and trans artist based in Edinburgh. Grew up working class in Leaf. Never moved away. I think I spent seven or eight months in Musselburgh when I was at QMU in my first degree in Halls. And that was fun, but a very much... Uh, was an out of I was an out of town. I felt that sort of mess of nightlife and you know being able to I, I had the privilege of when I went club and I could walk home. I was a 10 minute walk from town. So it was really easy for me as opposed to muscle bra. You'd be getting like a 20 to 25 pound black cab home because I was not walking back to muscle bra and drag. Like it was not gonna happen, <laughs> you know? Um so I grew up a wee little performer in a family. I was actually really funnily enough, I was really introverted. Like That'd be my cat, by the way. Um, I was really, really introverted as a kid. And that really surprises myself and people when I talk about that now because it's so jarring. And I was quite an awkward soul, a lot of social anxiety, really shy. And it was only kind of when I got to high school that I met other people like me that I fell in love with drama at high school. And I had a, a great high school drama teacher. But I also had that cliched queer experience of having a brilliant English teacher and like anyone I knew who was queer was like, oh yeah, my English teacher saved my life. And I was like, okay, come through Adele, you know, like, and and I very much fell in love with writing. So that was where that kind of passion came from. And what was really funny was recently I was talking about this. I was a mentor for class act for the Traverse. And one of the first kind of theater credits, let's say I got was writing for class act when I was 17 for the Trav. And I got to feature, I mean, it was this hilarious short five minute play about a girl that, smoked spliff um to help her cope with anxiety uh, <laughs> and it's funny now and, uh, and it definitely was a really abstract piece and I remember writing it and uh, and there was something just so surreal about getting to have your work on the Trav stage at 17. So the love for theatre kind of fell from there and I'd mulled over when I was a teenager it was either going to be theatre or politics that was the career goal I loved modern studies but I've always talked about the fact that in higher modern studies, I've done an essay. It's for like a NAB. I don't even know if they still call them NABs now, I'm sure I'm age, but I did a NAB and it was like out of 25. And I said, what did I get? And he said, you got two out of 25. And I said, two out of 25. And what was the two marks for? One for attempting the essay and one out of a gesture of goodwill. And I was like, oh my God. So I decided fear was for me and not politics. Uh, I loved talking, believe it or not, at that point. But and challenging the patriarch and the rules but it wasn't I wasn't the most academic I found concentrating quite difficult in school which actually later neurodivergent diagnosis makes so much sense and uh, and yeah I went to QMU done my drama degree with total transparency I hated it I didn't enjoy the course I've spoken to a lot of people that now love it it's a different course now but at the time I really didn't enjoy the course and uh, I left in my third year just with my Bachelor of Arts. I found a great tutor who nurtured me in playwriting, a lot of people would know, called Ksenia Horvat. And I really enjoyed getting tutored by Kate Nelson, who was a great director, who was very upfront about how tricky the industry actually was. And a lot of people didn't like that on the course, but I actually really liked 
that honesty of, you know, this is a tough industry to work in. You've got to get out there working now, which is what I did. You know, the moment I could get youth theatre jobs, work experience, I'd done like a fringe show where I performed as an actor. I'm not even an actor now, but at the time I was. And I was really just building my repertoire work. Uh, and then I fell into kind of drag. And, and I would say, although I'm not a drag artist now, you know, gender expression and performance was kind of really what got me to where I am now. And, and then there's more that unfolded as time went on. But that's the shortened TED Talk version. I mean, I'm like all in for the long one. Um, I'm more than happy <laughs> for the long one. <laughs> Heard that about you. <laughs> um, I mean, what can I say? Um, I've got <laughs> she chokes. <laughs> <laughs> How at? <laughs> um, there's so many things that I want to kind of touch on there. Just like the talking about drama school. Drama school is such an interesting conversation for so many of us that have mm. trained and wherever you train as well because you always have people who are like oh I loved it or I absolutely it was like the breaking of me for a lot of people is like they're mm-hmm. like I was this old-fashioned idea that drama school has certain drama schools have of tearing you down and then them saying they're going to build you back up but they never quite build you back up to where you were and you're so you're at such a young age and you're not fully de- your brain isn't fully developed absolutely and the kind of you know long lasting trauma that's happening there for for lots of different things um and it's really interesting a place like QMU that have gone through kind of like almost in the last 20 plus years maybe like the last 25 years like three different transitions of Mm. what type of school they are um so it's really interesting that you know now it's kind of Lots of people seem to really love it. I'm, I'm with you. I've heard loads of people really love it, which is amazing. But there's lots of people in different years and different points that find it really tricky. Um, mm. And I think it's something that we were scared to talk about a little bit in the arts. Like, we're like, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. The rocking of the boat. I will rock. I'll sink the ship. <laughs> I will sink <laughs> that ship, girl. Like, there was a tutor on my course, right? I, will, I do not mean Sharon because I ain't going to say names. No names, no lawsuits coming at me today, right? But there was a tutor who said like, to say me. Say the names, say the names. <laughs> say it, say it. But see, I have built a lot of my career on having cystic fibrosis, right? And my mental health challenges, my experience of a lot of shit, right? And I remember a tutor saying to me when I wanted to do contemporary performance, you've got CF, I don't think that's wise was her exact words in front of the class, your your health could compromise you doing this as a, a career. Now, ain't it ironic that that issue actually gave me a career in a way, girl? Yeah. You know, like that actually became a medium for me to explore. But I mean, that was one experience of many on that course. Now, I hope with time and of evolution, they have really went, maybe we can't say that to disabled people. Maybe we can't yeah, say yeah. this to people of colour. Maybe we can't say this to people that are like trans. You know, maybe we can we maybe can't say to women, well, your size actually isn't going to suit that role, you know? But but this is sadly still conversations that are happening, you yeah. know? And I never forget recently, and again, I won't say who and what, but I have got a friend who did musical theatre training. Now, she did not have a good time, put on social media, and oh my goodness, the amount of people pile on on her for coming forward. You're like, can't believe that you would say this about that school and all the opportunities it gave you. And I sit and think, but you're allowed to talk about how things have changed like 10 years on, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like, that's the big thing of if we can't call people to account and make them accountable and also Mm. make them start to acknowledge the situations that they are creating, one, Mm -hmm. and not addressing, two, then we are perpetuating the cycle. So if we are given any form of constructive criticism that is what it is it's not we're not trying to take down people so that they get fired or maybe some people um but you know the whole point is that so that we are in a safer environment for everybody i mean the fact that someone said to you that because you have cystic fibrosis that you couldn't be a performer and this is going to well you know let's start listing everything then like you say if it's whether it's your weight or your queerness or your color or um your eyesight like mm-hmm. you know are we are we going to start to get down to that mm. oh you're wearing glasses oh, I don't know if you can be in this mm-hmm. like it's beyond ridiculous first of all but it's also mm. so a it's so not forward looking and not forward thinking and it's um mm-hmm. you know not uh, embracing everybody for who they are and louise has joined us how is my gorgeous lou hiya babes hiya i'm so sorry technology hates me we don't get on but mm-hmm. i beat it into submission and here i am lovely to see you it's okay. Before the interview, though, I was saying before the interview to Elaine, the Mercury and retrograde shadow period has begun, girl. Like, everything's <laughs> starting to stop working now. I'm like, girl, please, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I it's ridiculous. Yeah. And to go um, back to what you were saying, Elaine, like, the thing is, that was 2014 that that shooter said that to me. And, and I just, it's like now I know that would probably not be getting said. But then I think... I'm, a, you know, I'm allowed to communicate that. And if I was to put on really? Facebook, the amount of people that would go, oh my God. But there would probably be people on my course who'd go, oh, but listen, when we were studying that, things were different back then. I'm like, yeah, and we should be allowed to say, and they shouldn't have been happening like that back then. Like, it's not about, oh, but pe- what are people like? They make mistakes. It's like, yeah, but that's why we have the conversation, you know? And that's the difference, right? It's about how we... Uh, acknowledge and embrace those mistakes and how we then um, move forward and how we start to rectify behavior so that everyone feels safe in a space whether you are a queer artist a disabled artist an artist of color um, a femme presenting artist um, and someone who is dealing with weight issues so that we are someone and also someone who's coming to this career maybe much later in life like um, mm. age is one of our big ones that kind of like gets not forgotten about, but certainly I think in our industry we have this real youth centric um thing that happens. Like we see it in all of our callouts and stuff like that as well. And mm. um, we need to start being able to accept the mistakes that happened, acknowledge them, and actually start to put things in place that will help that from it happening again and be able to move forward. Yeah, and just quickly on the age thing, I just interviewed a girl from my radio show on EHFM and she actually told me that she was 42. I didn't realise because she was so, you know, she had jeans. The jeans were were working for her. Like I was like, girl, I thought you were like, you know, late 20s. And she said, I'm 42. And I said, well, what's your views on intersectionality and especially being a woman in the music scene? Because she's a music uh, producer and DJ. 
she didn't really take off. I, I said to her, I reckon this time next year, she's going to be famous, right? She's been on tour with Gokwan and Becky Hill was like dancing to her DJ set like a few months ago. And she was like, oh, age is such a big thing though. I don't tell people my age because I'm worried that people will then look at me and go, oh, because it's a very youth-led thing being a DJ and musician. And she was talking about some DJs are older and, and have got the wealth experience and they're still doing it. But it's like you say, it's still happening with age around theatre, music, film, whatever it is. Oh, it's definitely happening in particular in theatre and film, especially if you are a, a woman, because like I know like of people who are like, oh, don't put on that it was my 40th birthday on social media because I don't want people to know that I'm 40. Mm. And I'm like, but what, I mean, I am 42. Um, and like that kind of, I know, it's fine. Um, both looking gorgeous. You're both, you and Louise look gorgeous, honestly. Thanks. Um, but also it's that thing of like, obviously I go back and forth with my age. I don't think anybody doesn't and, you know, all of those things. But, you know, things have happened in life and things happen to people that you love. And then I just keep trying to go back to my kind of what a privilege it is that I'm here at 42. What a fucking privilege. So I should be allowed to celebrate that. And my industry should fucking support that rather than trying to put me in a box where I because they don't want to deal with it. Because that's the patriarchy. That ain't anything else. That's mm. the that's the patriarchy's fear of women stepping into their power. Yeah, it's a form of control. Um, our industry isn't youth-centric, it's youth-obsessed because yes, youth-obsessed is ageless. It's about fuckability, it's about viability, and it's about not questioning things. Because by the time you hit your late 30s, 40s, 50s, you don't give a fuck anymore. Fucks have left the room, they're gone, they've got the bus, they're down the road, they're away. Yeah. And when that starts to happen you challenge certain things you start asking questions and the status quo doesn't like it when you do that so there's a window of time where you're fuckable moldable and manageable and that's why we're youth obsessed or she's youth obsessed in my opinion give her a prize give her a prize i fucking love that like i don't know everything about that was so passionate i loved it it's great she's really good isn't she on the You're both subject really of fuckability, good. though, I think all three of us are clearing that bar, like, with a fucking <laughs> bomb. So just, well, like, I mean, there. I love that. I mean, but then we need to always have a conversation where, you know, I was a former drag queen of seven years, and the amount of objectification that came with that role. I mean, don't get me wrong, I loved being a drag queen and I'm going to do my last drag show next year and say goodbye to being a drag queen. It's, you know, it's been a lengthy process to decide to do that. But the amount of objectification from men who were wanting to sexualize, and it's also a trans thing, though. Men that, oh, I watch trans porn, so I know what it's like. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like, you have no clue. But when you were in drag, you know, if you were very, that silhouette of very pretty, very femme presenting, sort of, um, that look really would then attract them to you on nights out, and then they'd want to sleep with you. But then you think to yourself, like, God, I'm not here to sleep with you. I'm here to DJ. I'm here to perform a lip sync Whitney. I'm not here to go home with you. I charge double for that. You know what I mean? Like, and uh, and that happened all the time, all the time. But I mean, I will say, and I, I know we're in good company. I will say the amount of women at Hindus and drag shows, you know, and all these parties, and especially Christmas functions, 
I'm not a big Christmas fan, I must confess, and I will not DJ at Christmas anymore, the, the private parties, because it's just not worth it. It's not worth the anguish and the dealing with requests. I wanted to ask the, you about that, Jordy, because I know, I think it might have been yourself, but I don't know of other people who have mentioned this, this um, lack of boundaries and lack oh, of yeah. respect and it come, that comes from women to uh, drag artists when they're in those situations. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's it's not even just women. I think it's just the I know, no, I know it's not just women, but just because yeah, you mentioned yeah. the Hindus, which are predominantly you yeah, know, yeah. people, and just that kind of I, that mm-hmm. situation around that. Yeah, no, you were right. I, I did say to you previously when I did the work with equity, you like all oh, women and Hindus and stuff. But I mean, it is just it seemed. I think. People have this conception of drag has no boundaries because we are pushing ourselves out the box with our gender and a performance, but that doesn't equate to a context of, yeah, you know what means you can come and do whatever you want to me. That's it's the poor opposite. And I often used to say when I hosted drag shows, like, you know, you would get thrown out if you tried to jump on stage with Beyonce at the O2. Do you know what I mean? So Danny be doing it in my club, like, and people would find it funny, but equally, like, we'd get people that would go on stage and we'd have to get them removed by bouncers. But we would get women like Hindus or or even sometimes you get stag dudes that came in because they thought it was funny to have the stag dressed up in a woman's outfit. Like, ha ha, that's hilarious. And and don't get me wrong, sometimes I'd meet really attractive men that'd be kind of really kind and they'd apologise on behalf. And I think maybe I will take you home tonight. But a lot of the time, there's just a fetishization and sexualization of it and no boundaries and the groping. And, and that's the thing. Like, I've seen both sides of all gender identities of of people doing these things but I think it comes down to the no boundaries and and I think we need to speak out about that more not even just in drag but really across the board because there is a division you know when you talk to people that are older that worked in the industry of they will do things and go it's just a joke and I hate to say this but it's not to shit on anyone else but those names in the industry those kind of names are like they might do sort of say something and a producer might go, oh, but listen, like they don't mean anything by it. They've been doing this a long time. And it's like, no, no. Yeah, they've been That's doing it. this a long time is not an excuse for um, bad behavior. Um, it's so, that is so interesting to me, this, because I, I, I've encountered it so many times, the um, unhinged behavior of women in queer spaces. And, you know, I've encountered um, going into gay bars in queer spaces where there'll be signs up saying no woohooing from straight women. And then, you know, <laughs> it, it's true. Like, it, the, like, it, it can get completely unhinged. And I, and the, the grabbing and the groping and the complete loss of inhibitions, I think it's so interesting because there's something to me that says, is that some sort of like reverse internalized misogyny because this person is femme presenting or donning the, the, um, the tropes or the, um, the, the uh, visuals of of being femme that you now view them as something you can take and have and just like get in their space and is that is that something that like is sort of a reverse idea of what happens to you out in the in you know in, in male dominated spaces if you like and I don't know there's just something really fucked up and interesting about the psychology of that like that completely unhinged non-consensual behavior particularly towards drag queens and in, and in queer spaces from straight women in particular, because it can, I know it's, I know it's like, it's not, it's not gender specific, but let's be real here. Like a hen party can be, fuck, <laughs> like lock up your valuables and everyone you care about. It can get, it can get dangerous. 
We know this. Louise, <laughs> Louise, it is that. It is literally women going, oh, well, men have done this to me, so it's fine. To then saying that yeah. to drag it off. Oh, listen, men grow women all the time. It's not an issue. You're a man, so you'll understand this. Half the time, it, they don't even have the okay. concept of what non-binary or trans would mean. They see someone in drag and go, oh, you must be a bloke in a dress, and it's not. They just don't, they don't grasp it and understand it. And I think a bigger conversation needs to come from that of venues that are putting on shows for Hindus to come and spend money. Because a lot of the time, queer spaces are supporting their drag artists brilliantly and, and putting on shows. But there are venues that go, oh, if we put on a drag brunch, we'll sell about like, you know, £500 in tickets. So no realising that you should put in safety measures to make sure everyone's safeguarded, you know? Oh my God, there's so many layers to that. There's misogyny, there's like adopting the tropes of the patriarchy and there's fucking capitalism. It's like, let, like we can make money off a drag brunch. It's, it's all of it. It's the, it's the fucked up trifecta of horror. It's all of it. It was, it was one of the reasons that I really was losing my love for drag was the, the corporate ways that, you know, drag race is a great platform, but it's not the only form of drag. And it's like now it's like, if a venue doesn't have a drag show, the venue is not doing something right. And that's great and moral in principle, but it's like drag brunches are everywhere now. And drag brunches are one thing that I refuse to DJ because I know that I will not have fun and there's not enough money in the world they can pay me to do it. And to do it well, because equally, I could DJ a brunch and all I'd get asked for is requests. And I play house and disco and pop edits. I don't really want to play sing-along tunes all day. And I don't really want women screaming at me because they've spent, rightfully so, a lot of money on a drag brunch for a DJ that's not going to play what they want, you know? But it's very interesting that it's now like, if you don't have a drag brunch, hmm, why is that? And it's like, yeah, but it's about making money. The money. It's everything's about making money. I mean, Louise, you've hit it. Like, capitalism, internalised misogyny. Um, I, I actually think it goes deeper than that. I think it's something about almost trying to take some form of control back over of the situations that you find yourself in and have done for years and you're trained from a really fucking young age of how you survive these and then without realizing mm. it you then put that on someone else when actually I think if you take them out of that really heightened environment and sat not all of them some of them down and went what have you just done how did you just behave tell me who that's like wow it's deep. It's deep, She's man. Get, it's she deep. gets it. She gets <laughs> it's it. deep. Um, but talking about drag, because obviously you're you've done so much, Jordy, and you have your show next year. And I know that we want to talk a little bit on that, um, because it is going to be your final show after seven years. Yeah. Um, and that you said yourself has been a kind of has that felt like it's been a back and forth conversation, or does it feel really like no, this is clean for me. This is it. This is the moment. The drag show, like, is that is that the final? Has that been an easy process? Like, you know, like, yeah. has, it been uh -huh. a, has that been back a, and forth? Has it been, yeah, back and forth between am I, am I stopping? Will I keep going? Or when you made the decision that this will be the last one, that it felt absolutely right? I made jokes. I was like, you'll see, people see my last drag show in six months. You'll turn on BBC and I'm like, Jordan, to let the housewife on Drag Race UK. Like, no. I do joke like that, but honestly, like that would be very clever marketing strategy. But uh, because you obviously people know with Drag Race, you, you vanish off social media for six months randomly, which is definitely not that you're on the show when you post content every two days, you know. <laughs> uh, I think 
I had done so much with drag and I was really riding the waves of it. And, you know, when I first started doing drag for fun, just for a laugh, like literally a piss take with me and my pals in 2014, Drag Race with Netflix. It wasn't as popular on Netflix. If you were queer, you were watching it. But if you weren't straight, I don't think straight girls would even know what it was. I remember hearing Drag Race and thinking motors, motorbikes or motorcars. Like I, I knew nothing about it. And when I saw it, I went, this looks quite fun, actually. And I watched it and went, this is amazing. But again, even then, there was autonomy. You would watch a season and go, I don't know what I'm going to expect. I don't know what kind of queen or artist is going to be on this. But now it's like, all you hear now is the same thing. You see the same sort of templates, recycledness. And I kind of go, oh, I want some originality. But when we did it for fun in 2014, it was just a laugh. And then I kind of, like I mentioned earlier, the CF, you know, 2017, got invited to work with Birds of Paradise and and do a live art piece about CF and drag. And I thought, you know what, that could be quite wild, actually. I really could push the, the boundaries here with this. And people expect this to be really silly, but actually it could be really sad and quite deep. So that's what I've done. And then it was so well received. I thought, right, there's something in this. Doing drag, but having people come in and not realise what they're going to see, flipping on his head. So that was what my career became. The last drag show... It was like, I wanted to write it in 2020 when we were in lockdown and and it's just, I went on my journey of my mental health like every person with that lockdown. And then I waited a year and a bit and then I did my thing with the National Theatre Scotland, Dear Delight, and I really thought, oh, this is it. Like, you know, I, and at that time I did think, maybe I should try and get on Drag Race. Maybe actually I should try and get on this. This could work. But I didn't, um, I did send tapes and stuff, but didn't get on and I thought, right, okay, and then as I saw when we came back from the pandemic, you know, after lockdown, the clubs reopening and I was back to DJing and it was, that was a minefield, like DJing, but you had to have restrictions in place and, and people had no sense of boundaries on, I mean, it's all about sexual boundaries of touching people's bodies, but even COVID wise, people come up and hug me. I'd be like, I'm high risk, fuck off. Then I ought to talk to you on a good day, let alone right now in a pandemic. I've not had my like vaccine, you know, like, but people didn't have any clue. And then it got to 2022 and I'd got asked to in drag host a gig for an, a royal, which I'm not a royalist. I'll just say up front, I do not support the royal family, but sometimes you've got to take the paycheck when you need it, right? Listen, you've got to eat. And they've got plenty of money. You might as well take it. Absolutely. Girl, take their money. That's girl, actually ever money. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for paying my like rent that month, that guy. I'm, like, I'm really happy that you got that job that my money paid you. So you're Thank welcome. You. <laughs> you're welcome. It was fun. But it was like it was wild. Like, but but doing that was because I did a residence with Creative Youth and they were like, you want to like host a regala dinner and they happened to be a royal there that's patron. And I was like, Yeah, why not? I need the money. That was literally what I said. It was terrible. I was like, I need the money. So um, and I really was like, maybe I can get on drag race. And then I just saw the surgence of the the drag brunches and and the template, and and I thought. And I came out as non-binary and I thought, do you know what? I think I have, I've had my fill. And it was after Dear Delight with the National Bear Scotland. I thought, do you know, I think I've had my enough with drag now. Like even with wigs, I hated wearing wigs. There was a period in 2017 where I just like had my hair gelled with glitter like this, but glitter through it, but never wore wigs. But then I was like, oh, well, everyone has to wear wigs. I probably should wear wigs that are like mine and and stuff. So, um, so yeah, in 2022, I was like, do you know what I'll do? It's, it's part of a trilogy. I like things in freeze, right? And I'd done my first one in 2019, which was my autobiographical drag show. And that was all about sexual assault and how to deal, to navigate that and the trauma from that. 
no one knew that coming to it, which in fairness, I should have gave a disclaimer. I didn't really think that through. But at the time I'd went on BBC Nine and talked about sexual assault and sort of was like, this is what my show's all about. And uh, and that was the first show. And then the second show was a lung transplant show, a drag show about lung transplants, which was wild. And it was kind of like, oh yeah. But again, it was so out there and people came being like, what the fuck, a drag show about lung transplants? But it got you going. It got you right in the stomach and the heart. So I'd done that. And then I won an award for that. And that was wild. And I rode the waves of that in the summer in 2020. And then I thought, you know what? My third drag show was always going to be like me after lung transplant. That was what it was always going to be about. But I never got the lung transplant because I went on this amazing medication just for a lockdown, which completely flipped that on its head. Seems to be like a bit of a common thing in my life, flipping things on its head. And then I was like, you know what? I'll do it for a drag show that's all about lockdown and me getting on this drug and actually being on my own and I went back and forth on is it my last drag show I did I was like is it the last one and then the titles changed and then the the concept changed and then the dates have now changed because you know performers will say they can do things and then they change their mind and you're a bit like deep breaths (laughs) deep breaths so it's been it's been an obstacle and at this point I've been saying to people maybe this drag show is just cursed because it's been constantly delayed and cancelled. But in a funny way, drag queens are always late to gigs. So maybe <laughs> it's on point. Drag artists, drag kings, always late to gigs. Actually, I need to strip back and apologise because drag kings are never late to gigs. In fact, drag kings are there before the gig starts. Whereas drag queens <laughs> and drag artists, good God, girl. Like... <laughs> I think it's probably the right timing because I love numerology. So I'm all about 2024 is such a like, you know, add up all those even numbers. It's beautiful. Yeah. I think it's it'll be the right time. It's not that it's cursed. It, it's like it's the right time for when it's going to be and for what you need mm-hmm. it to be. That's what I think. Yeah. And also it was going to be in January, right, next month. And that ain't happening. Clearly, we're now in the beginning of December. And, and it just changed. And then I went, right, well, when can I realistically get this done? And I went, June. And then I went, well, actually, if I get my business head on, June is Pride Month in Edinburgh. So maybe it's actually worked out with the right programming, you know? And that will, that was another thing. I really want a heavily queer audience. I don't want this to be a lot of cis hitties that are like, oh my God, yes. And then they're screaming all the words to every song. No. So I think Pride will hopefully give a bit of them. Um, a bit of support for that. And I, I do believe things always kind of work out the universe knows. I've got 11-11 tattooed on You can't even see. I've got 11-11 tattooed on my hand. So I'm into numerology, but it's just been a process, you know. Louise and I are doing that thing when we're on Zoom that we do of like, who's going? I can see that she's about <laughs> to move. She, go for it, babes. No, I was just going to say, I think it's, um, you know, the, the idea of the last drag show and stuff like that. I think that, What's beautiful about drag in its truest form is that it, it's malleable and it can be interpreted. And I think you as an artist have really embodied that. And I think you. if you come back to it in a different form sometime down the line in a way that tells the story you want to tell, I think you're exactly the kind of artist that can move and adjust and interpret in a way that is drag in its purest form. So even if you hang up your wig, I don't know, you just don't know what's around the corner. You can pick it back I up really- again. No one will judge you. And if you want to take that RuPaul check, you take that RuPaul check. No one will judge you here. Thank you, Louise. That's so kind. Yeah. Well, when I'm on Drag Race season 69, you can you can phone me and be like, <laughs> I told you, girl, this was going to happen. Take the check. 
maybe it'll be not a repeater badge, but maybe it'll be like, I don't know, a gift to McDonald's or something, a gift voucher at McDonald's. I could do that. Like we Mackey's oh God, when I'm even, over. Don't even get me started on the repeater badges. The most offensive thing I found about the UK one was like, these girls here still need to eat, like in the US, yeah, no. getting cash prizes and fucking <laughs> like a lifetime supply of Anastasia Beverly Hills, and UK gets a Rue Peter badge. I'm like, well, BBC. welcome to the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but isn't it funny that the taxpayers to BBC, so we can't give drag queens payment, but let's keep giving certain people in the royal family houses and money they don't need come on like i'd like to publicly say right now to the bbc that i want to give them my money to the drag queens please thank you very much yes no more drag queens in the dole queue please (laughs) i love that on the dole queue um jordy you talked about like your first show being about um sexual assault and Obviously, you were part of one of the focus groups for HIPAA, um, which mm-hmm. is um, something that we've talked about on the podcast before, which is harassment in the performing arts, something that I was um, co-chair of with Federation of Scottish Theatres, with the brilliant and amazing Lisa Sangster and the rest of our working group, uh, Nellie Kelly, Harriet Mould, uh, Fraser McLeod, um, just incredible group of people and you came along and were part of uh, the focus group uh, one of the uh, yeah one of the focus groups for that and I'd just love a little bit of feedback on how you found that and because it is one of those things that it gets talked about in all parts of our industry um, whether you are a comedian stand-up whether you're an actor whether you're stage manager whether you're front of house whether you're a drag artist whether you're a writer um, it's it's everywhere and it is one of those things that happen but we're still not talking about it enough I don't think because if we mm. were we wouldn't have certain people doing certain things mm. yeah thank she says because yeah. she doesn't want sued either so I absolutely don't mind talking about this because I know I said to you before, like if you wanted to ask me about anything about that, I'm so open because, you know, um, it's a tricky thing to talk about. When I went on the BBC Nine in 2019 and I talked about, you know, consent education and how there was such a lack of that at school, like, you know, around what consent looks like, how it sounds. I remember working with Healthy Respect in 2022 on consent education videos and I was in drag and I thought, wow you got an organisation that are doing consent education videos for young people to watch, to understand what vocalising and what, you know, um, and consent can seem, uh, can mean, not seem. Um, so it's it's interesting. Um, for me personally, doing the HIPA was, was so important. And like you say, it's not been spoken enough about because people are scared of defamation. People are scared that certain people... A lot of people have too much money and can pay lawyers privately to send threatening letters. Therefore, people will go, okay, well, I better shut up then, you know. And and people don't want to put things on social media. And it's not just because, like, you know, if you put a thing on social media, like an Instagram post, even if, right, somebody sends you a threatening letter, blah, blah, like, someone is going to read that post and go, oh, did you see that post? And that person, I've always had that, that niggling feeling about that person. People have always said things about that person. Um, but I think it's fear. It's still fear. We're still driven by fear. People are so scared. And and once you get, you know, lawsuits thrown against you, even if they're empty threats, it does scare people. And also being a victim 
of not just sexual abuse, but emotional abuse, which actually my last drag show talks about emotional abuse and, and leaving an emotional abusive relationship. That's, it's kind of, I don't want to spoil too much, but you've got me in lockdown struggling with the, the pandemic and being on a new drug, so feeling physically well and having to really sit and assess, you know, is this person that I've been on off with who's emotionally abusive really good for me? Now, plot twist, I'm with someone else now. <laughs> so how do you think it ended? But at the time, I remember sitting, it's so foreign to me now going, I sat at the time and thought, why is he like shameless? Am I the bad person here? And I don't mean this whole like, like, you know, when I say emotional abuse, I mean the gaslighting. I mean the proper devaluing, the, the aggressive behavior, those, those horrible experiences. And, and that's another thing people are too scared to talk about is, and I'm now doing counseling training and a lot of therapists are like, I don't agree with this narcissist personality disorder. And I'm like, mm, I don't think so. I completely agree that that could be a thing, given the amount of people I've worked with in the industry that I think have been like that previously that I don't work with now. Um, so I think it's fear. I think that's half the problem. And I, I would say sexual harassment. I mentioned there happened in the drag community. The amount of women I worked with in theatre who men really took advantage of them, you know, as actors and producers and and all those other job roles. But I think also the the emotional harassment that happens and and how that can look, you know, people are very controlling. You work with some directors or or producers or anyone that are very controlling. You know, they can, and they make you think that you're really, I hate that thing. It's like you're overreacting. I hate that phrase so much. It's the biggest form of gaslighting. Or in another phase, I really can't stand. Sorry you feel that way. No, you should say, I'm sorry that my actions have caused this. And I, you know, I didn't mean that. That was my intention, but my actions clearly have had a knock on effect. No, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's on you, babes. No, enough of this. But speaking with those like many people who I can't obviously name out of them out of safety to them I'd hate to say it gave me comfort it feels like a sick thing to I had comfort being there but I did because I went these are all different people different walks of life sitting going this industry is still tainted by this and needs fixed uh, but it goes quite deeper and you know like I mentioned earlier I have experienced abuse from men and I have experienced it from women and I also am someone who's non-binary trans I don't think that means that all non-binary trans people are innocent. You know, I don't think there will be people in life, no matter what their gender or their background, who are just not nice and are, are perpetrators. What I do take issue with is the media scapegoating, saying this GRC happened at Parliament. Oh my God, and a trans woman is going to jail for... Come on. Like that, I sit and go, stop that. That pushing that narrative. You know, so yeah. But speaking on the HIP was amazing. But do I think we're there yet? No. Do I think we're getting there? Yes, to an extent. I think we are getting there to an extent. But I think people are just too scared still. And it's a shame, you know, but I ain't scared. <laughs> What's that song goes? I ain't scared of no ghost. <laughs> like, no. Love it. Jordi, Ghostbuster. <laughs> oh my god yeah and you know what's so funny i'm spiritual and actually i i really have got into my not clairvoyant but i'm starting to see ghost figures and people are like did i say that i'm scared of ghosts blah, blah. i'm like oh if they're lovely just be kind to them and they're like no Jordan, that's so funny and i'm like oh shit people are quite scared these things really whoops so i was just laughing at that that uh, description of ghosts like oh no i don't like them that's funny you're sad i'm not really like a, like a horse or a, a particularly scary looking staffy or something like that just 
Just put your hand out and go, just go gently, you'll be fine. <laughs> now that, so that was me. Think of. Sorry, that was very silly. No, Louise, that was me dealing with the Hindus. Oh, don't be scared, just give the wee pat on the head. <laughs> but thanks for sharing all that, Jordi, because I think it's really important that everybody hears that, like, no matter what part of the industry you're in, it is, and you've said it, you've just said it there about if you put something out, someone else will have that moment of going, oh, I've had that feeling. So it's just, there's something about the more we feel less alone, maybe mm. the more power we can garner to overthrow the toxic traits that have um, flooded our industry for years and have been allowed to grow um, tentacles. I like that. Can Ooh. I say one thing as well? Just Absolutely. one thing that really does bug me, right? But I just think it's the biggest observation I can make. See if you were to put a Facebook post or an Instagram post or whatever on TikTok, right? But you didn't name somebody. But everyone started going, I think I know who this is, blah, blah. And then that person thought, I'm going to get this done, blah. I'm going to write about this. I would sit and go, why would you think a post like that is about you when you've not been named? Because see me, if someone put this person's abusive, this, blah, blah. I'd sit and be like, oh my God, I hope that person's okay. I have a clear conscience. I'd go, that's not about me. But when people are then like, this is clear about me, I'd sit and go, why do you think that's about you? Why do you think that's exactly. about you? What skeletons yeah. are in the closet? Exactly. You know? yeah. A knee-jerk response to that kind of thing that makes it about you is telling on yourself. You're totally right. Like if, if your response is anything other than, oh my God, I'm so sorry that happened. How can I support you? what I, I wasn't aware this was going on how can I get involved in something to prevent this from happening again if your response is anything other than in that category mm -hmm. then that that's very interesting I and you know I, I've been saying to Elaine since the beginning of um the HIPAA framework being rolled out that you know the lack of engagement with that from venues and producers and and people in our industry it, it's it speaks volumes like if you're not willing to fully with both feet jump in and engage with that work and help mm -hmm. help it like actually properly seep into into our working practices then why mm -hmm. what possible reason could you have other than that maybe you've got people at the heads of your organization that aren't that interested in having things be all that transparent you know mm -hmm. but i have one other thing i need to add to that because what i just you just eloquently so summed that up louise right but the other thing is, you know, I didn't realize that you were doing amazing work with equity until you told me, Elaine. I didn't realize you were doing all these amazing work you were doing, Louise, behind the scenes. People didn't know I was doing a lot of this stuff behind the scenes because I don't need to go on Instagram and be like, guess what I've done this week? No. And the other thing that flips with that is just be mindful. Some people, when they are afraid that things are going to catch on to them and what they've done, might then suddenly go on social media and go, I'm really supportive of these things, blah, blah, blah. And it can be quite performative. You know, that's the tricky part because then other people go, how could that person have done this? Because look at their like TikTok account, look at their YouTube following. But then actually you realize it's been maybe, um, oh, there's a phrase, isn't it? Damage limitation or something, but you know, like, it basically makes people go, oh, that person could never do that because look at their social media. And that's half the problem. Whereas I often find when you do talk to people that they don't need to put these things on social media, but then people go, oh, so-and-so is doing this. Oh, amazing. Like, you know, this like charity work. You know, I work as a chair for a counselling service now to make sure that there are affordable counselling services for free. But I don't put on my social media where it is and, and what I do because I don't need to. 
you know I can talk about it here but it's not all over my social media account I think this is a really interesting thing I think you're absolutely right Jordi about the damage limitation right that but I think it. there's also something in those of us that are doing this work is that because we're not doing it it's not performative for us this isn't about us going oh look what we're doing to try and make things better we're just doing it but actually we probably all do need to do a little bit more of that so that we can connect in a much bigger way to everyone else that's doing it so that we're all working together because let's not have all of us working hard repeating the work that's already been done and because we don't know about it and so I think there is something about those of us that are doing that work we need we need to find a way that it doesn't feel performative for us putting that out there Um, and I think doing it through podcasts and doing it through conversation feel much more organic and it doesn't feel as kind of um yeah look at me I'm doing this I'm great yeah um I I know we've not got much time with you oh sorry go Lou no, I was just gonna. I was just gonna add to that because I think you're both absolutely spot on. Is that actually this kind of stuff is really hard work and it's really fucking tedious and it's slow. And I and think tiring. That's the thing about, and tiring, yeah, emotionally draining and like real sort of advocacy and activism. I don't even really like the word activism because I feel like that's that almost sounds a bit performative and shiny in a way that I don't. It doesn't sit well with me. Like I feel like advocacy is a better word. For me and how I feel about these things because it is very slow it's very about having conversations it's complex about it's about understanding all the things emotionally legally uh, bureaucratically and, and and trying to sort of slowly roll out change in a way that feels palatable palatable to people because the minute you start kicking down doors and setting fire things is great in some in some context but if you really want people to listen to you and not run away because you're right, Jordi, like you touched on it already a few times, fear is such a motivator and it's a thing that can prevent people from engaging properly. So this stuff just, you have to be in it for the long haul for it to really, really work. And posting on social media about what you're doing isn't enough. So mm-hmm. yeah, I totally agree. Anyway, sorry. Just wanted to say that. Never apologise. Um, but yeah, Jordi, we've not got long left with you and there's a couple of things that I would love to ask. And like, I think the first one for me is like, you're obviously you're a DJ as well as being an incredible artist. And um, for me, like, when did that love of music happen? Because I was really lucky enough to come on your radio show. We got oh, to yeah. have that great conversation. It was brilliant. So I'd love to chat about that. But also, um, because you have been writing since such a young age, um, it would be brilliant if you've got any little tips, tricks, um, or your writing process, just because I always think people love to hear other people's processes. Because it's like any um, artist, we take all those little tools that we can find and see what works for us. Totally, yeah. And I mean, I've got I've got at least 20 minutes left, eh? Until I've got to go get my Uber on the sesh, eh? She's got to go on the sesh. I'm not, I've actually got a networking thing I need to go to. I wish it was a sesh. Uh, See, I think the first one, DJing, I've, I've often said DJing was just something I did for a laugh for a night. I got given a residency from it. It was back in, I don't know if either of you have been to Planet in Edinburgh, the pub, the LGBT pub. Louise is nodding. I feel sorry for you, Hen. I get where you're coming from because it was oh, not. Nod. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's thinking, good God. <laughs> uh, I used to drink there all the time when I was 18 and then basically it had, it's quite a funny story, but I've often found with my life, with my like health issues, those sort of things, there's always been something bad. 
And then I then I've went, oh fuck it, life's too short and done something else from it. And in 2013, I had a lung collapse happen randomly, which is very scary. It gave me chronic health anxiety for a while after I recovered, thankfully, but it was quite a scary thing. It happened at nowhere. And after I just had this mentality of, oh fuck it, life's too short. So the, D- the DJ was leaving Planet and I was that bitch, right? I don't do it now, obviously, but I was that bitch that when I went on night suit would ask DJs for songs. But I would always say like, oh, you know, I'd love if you could play like Madonna Vogue, Blonde, Atomic. But anytime I asked for these songs, it would actually go with the song. And a lot of the DJs would go, do you know what, actually, that's quite a good suggestion. I'll put that on. And I'd go, oh, thank you. And I'd always buy them a drink, which always is my biggest tip that even if it's a sober beverage, buy them a wee drink, it might make them go, oh, do you know what, fine then. Um, so I did that. And then the DJ there was like, oh, you should ask the DJ here. And I went, aye, okay, whatever. And it was wasted. So I asked the owner. And he said, yes. And the next day I was like texting. I'm like, remember you said you offered me that shift? He's like, I come in. So I, I just put a, together a playlist of songs that I love listening to. A lot of it was like 90s and 2000s dance. Robin S, Show Me Love, Point of View, DB Boulevard, all that Lola's theme shapeshifters. Oh, every time I hear it, I think of the waltzers. So I was like, I'm going to like play all that sort of stuff. And then they offered me a Monday. I wasn't even paid for three months. I did it for free because I just thought it was fun. I'd get paid in drinks, which on reflection, not now eh, appropriate in any way to pay people with alcohol. And then after that, I really got the itch for it and it kind of developed, you know, I ended up, I then was like, oh, what do the street? I then was like, oh, I want to do CCs. They wanted to do the Cowgate clubs, like Sneakies, Bongo. And to be honest, like, I think everyone, it's just been my experience being working class, but everyone sees how, good people are doing on social media and goes oh they must just get things handed to them do you know how many messages i would send especially the dj to venues just being like can i just get like a warm-up set and a lot of them don't even get back to you like see music i don't know why i've decided to move away from working more in theater into more into music at the moment because you email so many record labels your songs and they just don't even reply you know um but music was always something i loved i really enjoyed making cds the kid for fun um and then I thought, you know what, like, I just got really into, like, house and disco music. And it wasn't even just about, like, the sort of, because it's now really cool to play disco music. It is. It's a commercial as hell thing. Uh, but I think it was more, like, the empowering vocalists. You know, you'd get people singing, like, um, that song, Martha Wash, like, Carry On, you know. Um, I stand alone in the eye of the storm. And it's just, like, you hear it and you're like, too fucking right, I do, Queen. And it makes you just feel really empowered. I think that's what my radio show, Voices Radio, is. It's all empowerment. So, I mean, I do that monthly now, and that's on the radio. But, like, even when I'm doing sets live, you know, I will play a lot of underground stuff. And then all of a sudden, I will break it and play, like, Borderline by Madonna, and people lose their shit. And I just think that's what I love watching. And I actually remember, Louise, when you did um, Jocks, Tams and Bairns and he's done Dress Me Up. No, but you did Dress You Up. And I'll never forget, I actually burst into tears because I was having the worst time at the time. And I was with that guy who was emotionally abusive and I was really just, and I was really elvisly. And I just, I've got a love for Madonna. So much love for her. I can feel myself emotional, sorry. Um, and seeing you do that, oh, no, we do not apologize for emotion or tears on this podcast, Jordy. They are more than welcome, <laughs> absolutely. Thank you. And I just remember he's doing dressing up, and for like those five minutes, I just thought, oh, do you know what? Life is so shit, but when music comes on, you just lose yourself, you know. Um, so that was the DJ thing, and now I'm I'm in the midst of getting potentially an agent for DJ work, which is exciting. Nothing's confirmed. I'm playing a festival. Next August, I'm doing um, Mugstock 
in August. So check out the dates for that. It's going to be a nightmare to drive to. Thank God I've got a new boyfriend who drives. <laughs> and he's not my free chauffeur. I promise him. He's lovely. But he does have a car. I'm logistical. He's got a car. He has a ride and he's got a ride. Uh, and then... I love your both. No one can hear, but they're both just pissing themselves at me. I love I know. it. If we ever get married, I'll just be like, he is a ride and he's got a ride. <laughs> uh, I mean, and then in terms of the- I have to steal that because I'm in a very similar situation with my partner. Ride has a ride. I'm going to steal it. Sorry. If I can have you your permission it, to do that in our wedding vows at some point, right? Okay, well, only if I ordain, you know, I'm the celebrant. That's the deal. Oh. Can this happen now? Why not? <laughs> I want this to happen now. <laughs> Let's do it. I'll be a celebrant. Someone actually, total tangent, right? It's the neurodivergent brain, sorry. But uh, it's like someone once booked me and was like, will you be the celebrant for my wedding? Because you're a drag queen. This is like in 2021. And I went, I'm not qualified to do that. Oh, I thought all drag queens could do that. I went, girl. Like, but then I, I thought, want to, I want to know money? what the connection is there. Like, yeah, why would you think all drag queens could do that? No clue. And I was like, but I then thought, God, that's something you can make a lot of money from doing for queer you weddings. Pay three grand though to do your training. Right. Okay. Creative three, Scotland sort of <laughs> open fund. Because <laughs> I have thought about it, but you need to do three grand to do your training and the big thing for me is that you have to do um funerals first and I oh god I'm too empathetic I would be crying like I just I couldn't so mm. um it's the Pisces and yeah you just love everybody you cry all the time oceans of emotions you know oceans of emotions so many emotions um to go yeah, back Jordan, to the writing sorry. process <laughs> no it's okay you asked me about my writing process uh I, at the moment I'm doing a concept. I'm going back into my live art stuff because, you know, I did an MA in art school years ago and I'm finally using it. Uh, and I'm a big believer in mind, body and soul as a concept right now. You know, writing always came from what was going on in my brain. But I think I had to challenge it through my body and my soul. And, and really, I think for me personally, like I always wrote about what I was going through at the time. And I, I don't mean, because I do take a lot of issue now with organisations basically wanting people to recreate their trauma on stage. Let's talk about this. You know, the amount of times I was an autobiographical artist for years. Now I'm not anymore. I've, I've stopped doing it this year. That's it. Um, it's funny that I've stopped doing it and then the commissions haven't been coming because suddenly I don't want to make about my work about being non-binary or, or having CF. And, and I'm like, yeah, but there, I could just write a nice play. I could just write a screenplay. I don't need to make it about me and everything going on in my life. Um, but I am putting the work in to make that happen next year. And making autobiographical work was amazing. And it was what was going on at the time. And I do think if people want to draw influences, you know, I've never met one writer that writes a play or a screenplay or something or poetry that there isn't a little bit of it, you know, like, come on. Like, uh, I'd be very surprised. I mean, if you are someone who can just abstract amazing stories, cool. I don't think, in fairness, the writers of Game of Thrones were really going for everything they were experiencing. Maybe they were, I don't know. <laughs> that red wedding, Jesus. <laughs> um, but yeah, for me personally, I always drew experiences from what was going on in real life. And I think it was a really healing thing as well, you know, because there's loads of work I made that wasn't true. Like, I mean, I mean, when Dear Delight was written, 
I did break up with someone who I dated very briefly and I made that about it. But then there's other work I've done where I, it's not. Like, I've wrote stuff and I've went, oh, that's no, that's no um, completely true. You know, like in this last drag show, I did change it slightly because it was so resonant of what happened at the time that I actually thought to myself, I think if I go on stage and act all this out with three other performers, I might have a breakdown because this is actually what happened. And that was what I did wrong in my first ever show in 2019, the Wasted Youth, the sexual assault show. I'd just told my whole life story on stage and afterwards, I was exhausted. But I also thought, oh God, like that probably wasn't safeguarded for me. I didn't have great boundaries, whereas now I do. So yeah. And on the last show, by the way, I'll just say, I am doing a call out for this drag show for free performers. I've had to make the difficult decision to just do an open call out and find people that can commit, who are available, who know what they're wanting to do from this. So, you know, check my socials for that in the next few weeks. Uh, because, yeah, I want to make sure this is done right and it's paid and, yeah, it's all good. But um, the writing process is interesting for me. Because I just, like I say, I've never met anybody that doesn't put a little bit of themselves in their work, you know? I mean, that's why they say don't date a writer. So if you don't want to see your life on a screen or on a stage at some point down the line, avoid dating a writer. Um, but I think, it, I think you're right. I think it's unavoidable. Artists do put themselves into their work. Where I get really, really pissed off is that so many organizations and funded institutions use that as an answer to their EDI, you know, their inclusion or diversity quotas. They'll say, well, we'll get this artist to mine their trauma, like just expecting marginalized entities to only make work about that marginalization. And then suddenly that ticks a box for them. It's like, fuck off. Sometimes some people just want to, like you say, write a nice funny play and that should be allowed. Um, so the mining of trauma so that organizations can look good really fucking boils my piss god i love you yeah, louise if that. you <laughs> if you don't end up marrying this partner i'm marrying you next because oh my god tell me edi i mean i talked about edi recently we were here in scotland on my radio show and it was just like edi is just a big thing right now that i sit and go oh my god but like you say there are loads of organizations you know i've actually i'll be honest with both of you i've actually stopped doing the monitoring forums unless you need to unless it's like a part of the application requirement that they're like now you need to do this or your application looking forward i've stopped doing it because i'm like i'm not giving you oh i'm non-binary trans blah blah blah. you know i tick a lot of boxes <laughs> like and i ain't giving you that because a lot of the time like you say oh yeah well we can make work with this and then we've done this and 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 i talk about this you know like and so many avenues that i work in that it's all great to say for equality and diversity inclusion but Maybe it's about time the people that are EDI are actually in charge. They're actually at the top and not having to pander to what the narrative of EDI is. Because that's another thing that I get very like, who, like my favorite thing that happened, I'll tell this quickly. I got a funding application rejection and it's really pissed me off. This really pissed me off. I wanted to write something that was to do with being non-binary trans. And it was just a play. Like it wasn't my whole life story. It was a play and it was a really good application. And the feedback I got was it wasn't fundable and they wanted to give me help by giving me somebody who wasn't non-binary and trans to help me review my application on what being non-binary and trans would look like. And I straight away went, are you fucking serious? 
Like you're telling someone non-binary trans and, and they gave, they told me the artist's name and I'm sitting going, that is somebody that's not non-binary trans. And I thought that is so inappropriate on so many levels. Nobody can see Louise and I's face. Um, I am full of fucking rage. How fucking dare they? <laughs> How dare they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it happens though. I don't really have words. It does. I'm, yeah, I'm so, yeah. But, it, but it, you know this happens. You I know, know this it's, happens. It's like, yeah. Oh. She's raging. <laughs> And She's that's been persistent and nasty. Have a nice night. <laughs> that's not just the worst story. I oh. honestly will tell you, the last two years, like, I am still working in theatre, but I am hanging on by a thread, and I am calling if anyone, artistic directors listen to this, or anyone in the industry that's freelance listens to this, I'm calling them to start doing the work because people like me are burnt out, sick to death of trying to kick down doors that don't want to even open a centimeter. And it's not that I'm against industry. The industry is amazing. Wonderful people like both of yourselves and me and other people that are really doing the work, right? But there's so many times that I've been messed about the last few years, like promise work, fell through, ghosted in emails. Like, like there's been organizations that have been brilliant, have supported me, and I, they are people that commissioned me and they've been so lovely. But there have been organizations that have not done that. And it's not that, you know, they have to support me, but it's that their treatment has been bad. You know, and I've sat and went, and it's it's always work that we want to do this, but being non-binary, this about being disabled, this about this. But then they just drop your ghost shit. And it's like, no, that is really insensitive. And, and I mean, even there was earlier this year, I got cast for something for a read through and I asked what the role was because I didn't want to be given an assigned male role because I'm on my non-binary trans journey and they said yes yes totally fine and then they cast me in an, an AMAB role and I went like in a sort of cis male role and I said oh my god this is why I asked you and I got an apology and I thought well that's good but then I thought even that though I asked you ahead it's not good enough it's not good enough but it's not it's, no, it's not and it's yeah it's all about doing the work you're right and I think uh it's it's about it's that thing of like putting calls out and wanting to demonstrate or perform uh, inclusion and representation but then performative, on the inside, performative. Yeah. She but on the inside there's no safeguarding or or like you you might put a call out for a trans non-binary artist or a, um, a black artist from a working class background or whatever but they've done no work to understand what that lived experience would be like for them and then therefore mm-hmm. create an environment that is safe and caring and thoughtful about what how they are going to make their work. Most of the time, organisations just go, oh, well, we thought you would just get on with it like everybody else does. Like, what do you need from us? Like, we mm. need you to be doing the fucking work. Mm. Ah, At the so bare much. minimum, they should be making sure that it's a safe sp- fucking space. At the bare minimum and making sure that when you are asking people to mine their trauma, that there should be safeguarding in place and there should be um, whatever, whether it's a counselling service available for as soon as you finish or whether it's a room that you can go to that isn't the room that you have been working in all day to Mm. be able to decompress and have a fucking cup of tea and just Mm. breathe and know that you are still safe. Like, that's the minimum that they should be doing a lot the the work should be happening all the time and constantly and they're not and they haven't been doing it 
But listen, I've got one thing to say, right? And I'll not keep you as longer. It's it's a really nice closing thing, right? We do I'm have in... one question left to ask you though, Georgie. You can't right, that's fine. I'm into I'm into my astrology, right? And Pluto is going into Aquarius next month. And it's the first time it's happened in hundreds of years. And it's apparently the time for change for the next 40 years. So all I'm saying is bring on tearing down the establishment on January the 22nd. There you go. I love that. Amazing. Mark, your calendars and your almanac, people. January <laughs> 22nd. Your almanac. I hope I got it right because it might be another day depending on region. But anyway, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes of today's episode. <laughs> um, we do have one more question, Jordi, that we ask all of our guests. But before we do that, just for everybody, I'm going to put um all links for everything that Jordi's been chatting about in the show notes to of today's episode, and also um what I want to say is for Jordi's call out. Once you put that out, Jordi, I'm going to put that on our social media as well, and I'll pop it Thank in you. the. I can add it into the show notes of this episode. So if people are listening to it in January or February, there's a call out. So make sure yeah. that you are aware of that. Yeah. And all I'll say is like performance experience is essential. Drag is desirable at this time. I'm quite keen on hearing from people that maybe don't have drag experience that think, fuck it, I want to try doing drag. And I think actually my first, like last drag show being someone's first is quite beautiful. So yeah. yeah it's really beautiful. Lily, do you want to ask the last question? Sure can. So we ask all our guests this, as I'm sure you might know. Um, our name, Persistent and Nasty, came from a particular cultural moment. Uh, it refers to Elizabeth Warren. Nevertheless, she persisted in that time. And also the reclamation of the word nasty in reference to being a nasty woman for challenging certain power structures. Um, so it's a bit tongue in cheek, a bit funny, a bit re referential to a moment in time. Um, but we like to ask all our guests, when they hear that, persistent and nasty, the phrase, the term, the name of our brand, what does it make you think? What does it make you feel? What does persistent and nasty mean to you? Janet Jackson. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, my name ain't baby. It's Janet. Mix Jackson if you're nasty. Like, nasty girl. Uh, I, I Honestly, the first thing that came when I heard nasty, I heard janet jackson i've got a janet jackson tattoo but i think that album control if you listen to it there is a point to this but if you listen to that whole album with control like i think it's all about a woman seeking control and and reclaiming her power and sort of saying you know i'm gonna speak out against everything my parents have put on me that misogyny that really is deep rooted so <clears throat> as much as i hear nasty it's kind of fitting when you think about it with the album uh, i think when i hear persistent a nasty, I think of like female empowerment. I, I, and that's not exclusive to cisgendered women. And, and I would say like both of you are really championing marginalized voices by doing this podcast. But even myself being non-binary and trans, you know, like I've spoken about it so many times, but there's all this discourse around cis women hate trans people and trans people hate cis women. It's like, no, we don't. Like, um, and I guess from my perspective, being trans right now there is we're persistent you know this ain't gonna go away this ain't gonna go away like you can say what you want in the media like the AIDS crisis in the 80s with gay people this ain't going away and if we've got to be persistent and nasty to get there then fine um I think there's empowerment in that phrase persistent and nasty and um 
I wish it could have maybe been a bit more eloquent in my phrasing, but oh well. Janet Jackson, my hero. That was beautiful, Georgie. Thank you so much. Really beautiful. Thank you. Gorgeous. Georgie Jones, thank you so much for coming on the Persistent and Nasty podcast. It has been an absolute joy to have you. I feel like we need to have a part two. Absolutely. I could talk to you for hours. It was great. Absolutely. And um, again, anything that was mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes of the episode. And Georgie, thanks once again. And until next time, lovely listeners. Stay nasty. Stay nasty. That was so much fun.